Hi, my name is uh, Billy. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Reality Ventura. And we are in a series studying the kingdom of God, and we are using the book of Ephesians as our backdrop. This morning we are in Ephesians chapter 2, as Dom said, and I'll be reading and teaching primarily from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and most of the scripture will, will just appear up on the screen if you don't have access to that translation. The sermon today is titled, Changed by Grace. And so we will read our passage, and I'm going to actually read from verse 4 through 10 so we can see the context of the verses that we'll be studying. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For, and here's our passage today, verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In the church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for truth, the unchanging truth of your word. We ask you this morning, God, to cause your word, your living and active word, to be alive in our hearts and in our lives. God, that you would enliven your word to our mind, that we would be instructed, and in our hearts that we would be changed, and in our lives that we would walk as children of God. We love you, Lord, and we're dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, to teach and instruct. And so I just submit this time of preaching to you, God. Be our instructor, our teacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to make a statement that might sound a little controversial. The great human need throughout all of history, and the great human need continuing even today, is the need to be made right with God. That apart from being made right with God through Jesus, all of humanity is striving to make themselves right with God. Now that seems like a bold statement, especially if you're not a Christian or especially if you're not accustomed to coming to church. Because how could any of us know what other people are searching for, or certainly everybody in all of humanity? How, how could we know what everybody is searching for? And so some people object to this idea, saying that they don't feel the need to be made right with God. I don't yearn for righteousness. Righteousness might work for you, but I don't need to be made right. I'm not an inherently bad person. I'm not an unright person that somehow needs to be made right. I'm not searching for righteousness in my life. And the Apostle Paul is confronting this idea in our passage today, because that's simply not true. We all long for rightness, and we're all actively searching it out in our lives. Here's what I mean. Just picture right now, what does a miserable life look like to you? 
What would, what would you dread? What aspect of, of the possibility of reality becoming for you would you just absolutely dread? And so many of you are probably picturing a purposeless life, li- living a life with no purpose, perhaps, or a lonely life, living your life on your own, not having someone to trust or someone who trusts you. Uh, maybe it's insecurity might be your biggest fear. Maybe it's hopelessness. Maybe it's the the fear of never finding what it is you were created for or never finding a job that that can pay you enough to get by. See, we all dread these things or some combination of these things. And all of humanity is working hard to keep ourselves individually and our families from falling into these miserable places. Each of us looking to ourself, looking to our circumstances or looking to other people in our life, perhaps, We're all looking to be saved from these things. We're all looking to be made right, at least by our own estimation. And we do, it's true, we do need to be saved from these things. We do need to find a way to avoid these miserable places in our life. And so whatever we look to in our life to rescue us from these places that we fear, to rescue us from a sense of life is not right right now, and I long to be made right. Whatever we look to to go from not right to right is our functional Savior. It's what we lean on or depend on or put our faith in or our trust in or our efforts and our work into in order to save us from a life of misery or a life of disappointment or a life of loneliness or a life of pointlessness. This is self-righteousness, literally self-rightness, working to help ourselves feel right. And it's a natural drive. It's a natural drive. In our passage a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul said that we only, on our own, apart from Christ, we are only able to follow the passionate desires and inclinations of our flesh. That's all we know how to do. And then he has those two words we looked at a couple of weeks ago where he says, but God, things seem dire. In fact, they are apart from God, but God. Our passage today, Ephesians 2 verse 8, Paul says, for you are saved by grace. God saves us as an act of grace. Grace is the centerpiece of God's salvation. But what is grace? Uh, In our Christian culture, grace has become very familiar as a term. Ubiquitous, you might say. So familiar that we might not even understand what it means. And it's hard for us to be moved by grace if we've become so familiar with the word that it carries no unique meaning to us. If we're not impressed by grace when we hear the word, or we're not stirred by grace because it's perhaps become too familiar Grace has, in the Christian culture, become a familiar word, an ordinary word, a plain word, a very popular word. Grace is probably on more Christian coffee mugs and t-shirts and little cheesy like wall hangings than any other word. We've become so accustomed to seeing grace, but there's nothing actually, nothing familiar about God's grace. There's nothing else like it. You can't say that grace is familiar. Grace doesn't, well, it feels like there's nothing it feels like. Grace is from God, only from God. There's nothing plain about grace either. We don't see it frequently or commonly in culture. It's not anywhere else but in Christ. 
There's nothing ordinary about grace either. Grace is only and always extraordinary. And certainly grace is not popular. Nobody knows grace apart from God's grace through, through Jesus. Now, I experienced an unexpected act of grace um, actually at a, a U-Haul rental counter several years ago. Um, I was running very late to return this rental truck, and we had been moving, so this is like this is a really long time ago. But, you know, they charge you every 24 hours for the rental truck, and we were done. And I'm like, man, I got to get this stuff out of the back of the truck, get to a gas station, and return this thing so I don't have to pay a whole other day's rental when I know I'm not going to be driving it, right? And I, it took me a little longer to get everything out of the back. It took me a little longer to sweep it. It took me a little longer to get to the gas station. I get to the freeway. There's traffic. And I'm sitting in traffic, watching the fuel gauge once again start moving. And I'm, I'm like totally stressed out. I was annoyed by the fact that this truck was so gross. I was annoyed by the fact that I know I was late. I was annoyed by the fact that I was going to be handing those keys over 58 minutes late. And I asked the guy, I'm like, how much do I owe you? He's like, no, we're all good. You brought it back in time. And I was relieved, you know, like, I skated that one. But then there's that, you know, the Holy Spirit in me. I'm like, you know, I know I'm late. So I asked, I just like, you know, are you sure? I'm actually an hour late, you know? And he goes, no, um, there's actually a grace period. There's a one-hour grace period, so, so you're covered. And I've got this tendency to be sarcastic, even when it's not always funny. And I'm like, really, grace from U-Haul? That's, what's, what is that, you know? Just, just whatever, just re- being rhetorical and dumb. And U-Haul doesn't apparently cover the definition of the word grace in their training, and they don't teach people how to deal with, you know, sarcastic rhetorical questions. And so the guy's, like, trying to answer me, and he goes... I guess it means that you're late, and so you're supposed to pay, but you don't have to pay. I was like, that's actually a really good definition of grace, isn't it? <laughs> Guy pretty much nailed it. And I've always remembered that. That's a, it's a pretty good start to the definition. So what is grace? In our passage today, we see grace is two things. The first thing we see is that grace is a rescue operation. That Paul says in our passage in verse 8 that God saved you by his grace. He saves you. And grace means that we are literally rescued from a hopeless, helpless situation by God. Uh, there was a season in my life where I got to interview people who had, who had lived through World War II. And I remember in some of the, um, the British families that would talk about Uh, how they survived during the bombardment of London, during the Blitz of London. And there are some families that either didn't have close enough access to a proper bomb shelter or whatever, I don't know why, but they would hide in the cellar of their house, which is not a bomb shelter, right? And so they they would go all the way down to the cellar and they would tell the story of a bomb tearing through, they could hear it, tearing through the roof, tearing through the second floor, tearing through the, the kitchen floor, and then pop right down there into the cellar, landing in front of them. And then not detonating. And every time I would hear the story, I only heard it twice, but I would, it, it was always decided and, and concluded that it was God's grace that turned off the bomb's triggering mechanism. Like, why didn't that one explode? We should have, why didn't our house go up, right? And see, this is true. God's grace does actively save us from our desperate situation. This word grace is, is used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 in the, what's called the perfect tense. 
in the Greek. And that means that God's grace is a past experience, and it is also an ongoing experience in the present. It's, it's something that has happened in the past. We are saved by faith through grace. But it is also something that is actively, that we actively engage in in the present. And we see this in three passages primarily, uh, very clearly, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says that God is working in you, Christian. What a beautiful promise. God is working in you. He is giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That's, that's his present ministry, the present uh, act of grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the champion of our faith. Now, that word champion refers to the past tense, right? Jesus has won us by grace, by dying on the cross. So he's the champion of our faith, who, and then here's the present tense, who initiates, starts, and perfects our faith, which will somehow bring to completion the, the necessary faith for each season or each trial of life. There's a promise that Jesus will be authoring for us a more perfect faith as we live through the seasons and confront the issues of life. Jude chapter 24, or excuse me, verse 24 says, now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and he will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. So grace isn't just a past saving, it's this, it's this ongoing rescue. That God is offering us an ongoing rescue. And this is where some people stop with the definition of grace. This is where the U-Haul employees stopped, right? But that's not where our passage stops. Grace, first of all, is a rescue operation, but we see the second aspect of grace that the Apostle Paul says is that grace is a gift. It is a gift from God. God doesn't just turn off the bomb's ignition device and keep it from exploding. God eliminates our enemy. He saves our life, and then he gives us a new life. By grace, he makes us alive. This, this idea of grace is an active and compelling action, raising us, just like pulling us out of the bomb cellar and thrusting us out into a victorious life. It's an act that grants us favor and approval. By grace, he has seated us with him in the heavens, the Apostle Paul will say. It's not just keeping the bomb from going off in the cellar. It's then taking you out of the cellar and seating you in a place of victory. That is God's grace. By grace, God takes us from what we deserve, and he gives us what Jesus deserves. God treats us how he treats Jesus. And so in this passage, this idea that we are saved by grace, Paul confronts our functional saviors, the way we function in life in order to achieve or feel like we're achieving salvation from the miseries and the hardships and the fears of life. Paul confronts those functional saviors in this passage. And he is saying that none of these functional saviors can achieve what we are all longing for. Nothing we can ever do, nothing we can ever hope for will help us feel good enough. And he's saying, but you're saved by grace. Rescued from the misery that you deserve. Given the reward that Christ deserves. In all the ways that we attempt to justify ourselves. Self-righteousness 
really just boils down to comparison with others. Self-righteousness is always comparative. Our attempts to feel better about ourselves always lead us to compare ourselves and our situation. This means that the only way we can actually feel better is by doing better or feeling as if we're doing better than other people. Like we need to feel better by comparison in order to feel like we're okay. C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this in his book, Mere Christianity. Um, C.S. Lewis, rather than using the word self-righteousness that I'm using today, making our self-right with God, C.S. Lewis just straight out calls it pride. It's the same thing, pride and self-righteousness. He says, pride is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or proud of being clever or, or they're proud of being good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. And as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. That's heavy. He says a proud man is always looking down on things and looking down on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Self-righteousness is a disease, an infection that has infected us all, and it causes us to look down at others in order to feel relief from our own misery. And so what does grace do? Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he asks this question. He says, where then is boasting in reference to grace? He's asking that. He says, it's excluded by what kind of a law is boasting excluded? He says, by one of works? No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We're justified by faith through the grace of God, not through the works. Our best efforts at obeying God do not bring salvation. If your functional Savior is to be super obedient and say the right things and do the right things and have the right response to every question, that is not going to get you any closer to God and it is not going to bring you into the family of God. You are saved, Paul is saying, and putting an exclamation mark on, by grace through faith. Boasting is excluded. Works are excluded. In fact, grace actually maintains our brokenness while elevating us from the grave of sin. And grace changes us by excluding our attempts at self-righteousness. It changes us by eliminating our self-righteous tendencies. It changes us by excluding and banishing our self-righteous tendencies to boast. Well, just in case you didn't hear... Just in case you didn't know, self-promotion. See, grace causes us to look up at Jesus. And first, grace shakes us up so we fully know that there's nothing that we bring to the arrangement. And then God's grace lavishes us with more than we deserve. That is grace. And in this, in this act of grace, God wins our affections for him. We don't earn our affections for him. We, we don't discover our affections for him. We are given as an act of grace affections for God through the things we don't deserve and could never earn. God doesn't change us by forcing us to do better. 
God changes us by shaking us free from our self-righteousness and liberating us with kindness. That is grace. God's grace finds us desperate for approval. God's grace finds us desperate for purpose and leaves us full of joy. And we know true joy when we're emptied of all of the counterfeit joys in our life. When we're finally emptied of our attempts at self-righteousness. When we're finally emptied of our compulsive looking down at others, comparing ourselves with others. Well, at least our family doesn't do that. We might watch the same movies, but at least we don't think about them this way. At least my husband doesn't, or at least my wife, at least, right? When we're set free from those things, we're able to experience true joy because it's not tied to our comparative performance. And today, Christian, if you want to know and enjoy God in your life, know and enjoy and receive and walk in His grace for you. His grace is for us today. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 6, we studied it a while ago, but Paul said this. He goes, We praise God for the glorious grace that He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. It says He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and He forgave us of our sin. And He showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and all understanding. See, God hasn't withheld any good thing by grace. He has lavished His love and purpose and affection and power. And it even says in there, look at this is unbelievable. He's all wisdom and understanding even. That is grace and it's for us today. But grace isn't just for us today. It's also for us for all ages. In Ephesians 2, last week's passage, it says, He also raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, this is future tense, He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Jesus. God, for all of eternity, is going to be going, look at that guy, right? And people are going to look at me, and they're going to be like, oh, that guy, right? And then they're going to see God's grace all over me, and they're going to be like, whoa, God did that. Only God could do that. It's, I'm going to shine as, an ev- as evidence of not being able to strive or achieve or work for any compensation that, that's of any eternal value. I'm going to shine for all of eternity. Because God has done for me what I am completely unable to do for myself. God is ridding me day by day of pride and boasting and looking down. And for all of eternity, He's going to be like, oh yeah, look at that. Look at what I did with that one. Right? That one. And we see it's not just for us today. Grace isn't just for us for all ages, so to speak. There's this beautiful eternal picture that the Apostle John is given about kind of sitting in and being in and resting in the grace of God for all of eternity. We were made as creatures, as God's creation, to live and worship and experience life by grace. Revelation chapter 5 The Apostle John says, I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders, people. It says their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Okay, that's just another way of saying just a lot of people. Verse 12, they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
And then John says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them, saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Christian, your identity, your purpose, your joy, the fullness of life is all tied up in the grace of God. God's grace invites us into his presence to worship, enjoy, and celebrate him now and for the, all the ages and for all of eternity. Grace is the centerpiece. And notice that God's grace makes Jesus the focal point of all worship now and forever. Jesus is the grace of the Father to us, the one who justifies the unholy. All of this happens by grace. And the Apostle Paul says, the next little part of our passage, it happens by grace through faith. We respond to God's grace by trusting in, putting our faith in Him. And how do we respond to something that's already been done? A.W. Tozer says you respond by faith. Something that's already been done requires faith to respond to. And he defines faith this way. He says, A.W. Tozer says that faith is the gaze of a human soul upon a saving God. When the human soul is, is finally honest enough to see our own state and our own place and our own position, and our own helplessness apart from God. And then we gaze upon God, and we see His offer of grace, and we see the very real ways in which God has stepped out of heaven to meet the very specific needs of my life, needs that I am unable to affect in any way on my own. Then we're at that place as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says. We just read it in, verse, in chapter 12. He says, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he's the author, the finisher, the completer of our faith. We're able to take steps of faith. We live new lives, lives of faith. We live lives that have been affected by God. We live lives that have been changed by grace. And receiving God's grace changes everything about our life. Grace frees us from self-promotion. Grace frees us from self-righteousness. Grace frees us from our functional saviors. So here's, here's how the Lord's been convicting me. So when I find it coming out of my mouth, self-promotion coming out of my mouth, or self-righteousness coming out of my mouth, or self-righteousness happening in my mind as I start comparing myself, finding value in myself by looking down at other people, I, I, I have to catch myself by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and go, man, I'm not living by grace right now. I'm falling back into self-righteous patterns. Grace liberates us, frees us from that. It liberates us from fear and fear of failure and fear of loneliness. And so when we're struggling with fear and we're confronted with fear, when loneliness looms over us like a death sentence, like it does in some seasons of life, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and receive again the grace of God. Grace changes these, these tendencies in us and grows us out of these things. And because of this change in us, these foundational core changes that grace affects within us, what happens is grace changes our hearts. Grace changes our goals, changes our priorities. Grace changes our relationships. Christian, we are a people who walk by grace. Receiving and enjoying God's grace, it means that we're inhaling new life in Jesus 
through intimacy and scripture and prayer. And then as we inhale these things, we then exhale into relationships. We exhale grace into our community. We exhale grace into the world around us. Grace is not only compelling to us as we come to know and see God's love through his grace, grace also compels us to live our lives of faith inviting others and welcoming others into the grace of God. We see this in our final verse in our passage today, verse 10. Paul says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Paul is saying that we're no longer dead or enslaved or just barely scraping by in life. We're not what we once were. He is saying that when we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, we actually change. In fact, we change completely. It's not just our destination that changes. Everything about us changes. In Jesus, we are now God's workmanship is is the way the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates that word. That means that we're created with a purpose. Where's his workmanship? He, He crafted us. We were created for a plan. There's a purpose, a plan. We were created to walk in power. We weren't created to discover our own purpose. We were intentionally made by a creator. We weren't saved to come up with our own plan. We aren't supposed to try and walk in our own power. We are God's workmanship. Other translations translate that word workmanship as saying we're God's masterpiece. Right? Which, which brings out kind of a, a little fuller meaning. But really, the word that's used there in the Greek is the word poema. And uh, that word literally means poem. It, well, it, it doesn't literally mean poem, but we translate, we get our word poem from that word. It means something more broad. It's, it's creative in nature. It's expressive in nature. It, it reveals the identity of the craftsman as you examine and, and hold it before you. The ancient Hebrew idea of poetry, the idea of poetry that the Apostle Paul would have had in mind as he pens this letter to the church in Ephesus. The idea of ancient Hebrew poetry was for the poet to discover God's thoughts. Like the psalmist would, would sit with God and discover the thoughts of God, and then he would, he would almost like with his words create these rhymes and rhythms playing within the thoughts and intentions of God, discovering and rhyming with the intentions of God and the purpose of God, discovering a pattern in a style that so complements God's thought that it's, it's like a rhyme, the words moving in and out, the words of the author and the words of God. That's the ancient Hebrew understanding of poetry. And Paul is saying that we are intentionally created like a thought rhyme with God. Like God intentionally has woven us into his plans and his purposes and his powers. And God is a masterful poet, a good craftsman. It might be good for you to hear today that you are thoughtfully made. You are passionately made. You you don't learn that in school anymore. You're not allowed to learn that in school anymore. But you are thoughtfully and passionately made. You are creatively made. You are purposefully made. You are intelligently made. You are lovingly made. See, how we are made is important because it's inherently tied to who made us. The poet created the poetry. How we live is inherently tied to the purpose of who made us. 
Paul weaves the words of verse 10 together like a story. And what he's doing, really, is he's kind of telling this sweeping story of the entire human experience as we relate to God, going all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, in fact. He takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, where God saw all that he had created. He just creates man. He looks at the whole deal, the whole thing, and it, with, with man, woman, all in place, and he says, this is very good. Remember that? Well, previously, leading up to that verse... We see that God makes light, separating it from darkness. He says it's good. Separates heavens from the earth. Separates land and sea. It creates plant life. Says it's all good. And then he organizes the sun, the moon, and the stars. Puts them in their right places, right? He says it's good. He then creates birds, fish, ocean life. Calls it good. And then God creates land animals and says they're good. And then finally in Genesis 1, verse 26, after declaring all these things good, God said, let us create man in our image according to our likeness. Here's the triune God who lives in perpetual community as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying, let's create humans in our image, to bear our image, to live in community, relate to one another in such a way that when creation sees them, they see a reflection of us. It's the image of of who we are. Let us create. Make man like us in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing, everything that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay, He's he's encouraging now humanity to fill the earth, to, to be creative, to, to, to push life out now. See, he's, he's inviting humanity into the things that he's responsible for. You know, stewardship over creation, filling the earth now with humans. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree that is fruit-yielding seed. It shall be for food for you and every beast on the earth, every bird in the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, God creates humanity. He creates men and women. He creates and defines and initiates human life, and he declares now this this good creation, he declares it as very good. Now remember, Genesis is written in ancient Hebrew. There's no superlatives in Hebrew. So there's no, that word very is is a modern way that in English we would represent what it says in the ancient Hebrew. So it doesn't say God declared it was very good in ancient Hebrew. It simply repeats the word good in order to draw an emphasis on it. And so it says, he looks at all of creation and it was good, good is what that literally says in Hebrew. You add humanity, you add stewardship, you add the image of God multiplying and being, moving out through all of creation to steward and subdue and, and bring order to. He's like, that is good, good. Paul is picking up on God's clear and obvious distinction of humanity from the rest of creation. And this is a distinction that God has recognized and celebrated even from the very beginning. God doesn't just create humanity. He creates us, men and women, in his image. 
And he chooses humanity from all of his creation to bear his image. And he chooses to give humanity stewardship. He says, let us make man in our image, creating humanity to live in community just like he does. And then he says, let them rule over the fish and the birds and the cattle and all the earth and everything. And God is inviting us to be with him. God is inviting us to join him in his role of stewarding his creation. This is a fatherly invitation to his children to join him in the family operation. Right? He's saying, come be with me. Come do the things I'm doing. And this is the beautiful thing that the Apostle Paul is picking up because in Christ, we are brought back into God's family and we are made, made a family together with one another as we're made a family again with God. And God says, let us make humans in our image to be like us, to reign, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill, to govern, to tend, to watch over. Guys, we were made in the image of God to bear God's image in the world, to steward God's creation and to reflect his glory as we live our lives with God. That is grace, okay? That is God's grace. And Paul is weaving this ancient truth about God's special love and special plans for humanity. He's weaving this story into the gospel here. The gospel which changes and saves and empowers humanity through Jesus. God's special love and plan are revealed in his desire to create humanity in his image. But we know, if you continue reading the book of Genesis, that sin breaks and obscures the image of God in humans. In our passage from a couple weeks ago, but God loves us so much that while we were lost in sin and rebellion and brokenness, he meets us with mercy and grace. Okay, those two words mean two totally different things. God meets us with mercy, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve, right? As rebels, a a creation that rebels against God, we deserve punishment. God meets us with mercy, and he chooses not to punish us. That's the mercy of God. But he also meets us with grace, which means that God, instead of punishing us, he chooses instead to forgive us and to give us the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Here's the deal. This is God's love. He's choosing to restore our broken relationship with him by breaking the bondage of sin and rebelliousness in our lives. God decides to do that as an act of grace, as a demonstration of his love. And so in Christ Jesus, we're restored to God's original plan to have humanity be like him, to live with him, to steward over and shepherd over the earth and all of humanity and the church and all of creation with God. And by, by faith, it says, by putting our faith in God's grace, we are recreated according to God's good, good plan. That, that plan that he declared is good, good in Genesis 1. Jesus restores our intimacy with the Father. And Jesus restores our mission. Guys, that means that we have a very good, we have a good, good purpose in our life, restored once again to God's very good plan. In Jesus, God restores our original design and our original mission. And we're restored with God vertically by grace, which means we're able to be with God. We're able to experience intimacy with God. We're able to experience heaven on earth in such a way that that we talk to God, that we're able to have truth revealed to us by the power of God, and we're able to experience rightness, 
a true form of righteousness, not self-righteousness. We're able to experience rightness with God. That is vertical grace. But we're also restored to horizontal grace with God, walking with God in God's grace. That means that in our relationships, in the community in which we live, we bring God's grace, this good, good plan of God, this love of God. We're, we're horizontally, we're bringing grace with us everywhere we go. As we follow, God's invited us into the world to follow Him on His mission to spread His love and His grace everywhere in the world. And sons and daughters of God, you've been invited by your Father to join Him in His mission as He brings grace out into the world. We're made in the image of God. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, we're saved by God to once again bear His image and to live our lives together as a community for His glory. Walking with God by grace. Walking with one another in grace and seeing relationships and brokenness and God's image restored everywhere God's grace goes. Everywhere God's people of grace go, the image of God is, it bears witness to the love and the grace of God. Verse 10, um, I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Bible, the NASB translation. Very similar except for the very end. It says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's this invitational language for us to walk in these things that God has set for us. See, God is restoring men and women to himself, and he's inviting us into this life with him. We now get to join God in his work. We walk in his very good plan for us, in right relationships in right relationships with God and with other people. We're able to walk in right stewardship of the earth. In worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom does not know how to steward the earth. The environmental movement of the world does not know how to rightly steward the earth. We put things as more important than God designed them to be. Things are totally out of balance until men are made right, men and women are made right with God, and the image of God is restored within them, and then we join God in stewarding and shepherding the earth, not just environmentally, but relationally and socially and politically. The way we speak, the way we love, the way we prioritize life, all of that radically changes restoring God's good, good plan to his creation. Now, this isn't a call from the Apostle Paul to now, okay, guys, get to work. God's given you grace. Now go work for God. Get up. Colossians 2, 6 kind of teases this out a little more, expressing a little more what is meant. Paul says that, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. See, we receive God's gift of salvation as an act of grace, and we walk in Jesus, literally walking in grace as an act of grace of God. We walk in Jesus and bring God's very good image into his good creation, bringing God's presence and joy in love into our jobs, into our schools, into our neighborhoods. We bring, we bring peace into lives that lack peace. We bring God's presence and joy into places that are joyless, into places that are hopeless. Christian, you have been changed by grace. Our passage says, now walk by grace. But the problem, I think, in life 
is that sometimes we feel like we're not valuable to God. Maybe you're struggling with that today. Well, I just really don't, I'm not, I don't have anything to bring to the table. I don't feel like I'm valuable to the kingdom of God. And here's the challenge for you. Remember grace. Remember grace. Grace means that we're not loved because we are valuable. Grace means that we are valuable because we are loved by God. That's grace. Your job, your income, your age, your experience level does not make you special. You are special because you're an image bearer of God. That is grace. And when we've been changed by grace, we bring grace with us everywhere we go. We bring grace into every relationship. We bring grace into every encounter. We bring grace into every business deal. Because we've been changed by grace, we no longer work for a human boss. We now work for God. All of our work is an act of grace. We see it as God's grace upon us that we get to bring God's grace into the workplace, that we get to bring God's grace into the, grace into the economy, that we do really good, really faithful, really diligent work because we're not working for a man or a woman or a business. We're not working for ourselves and for our reputation. We're working for God. We want to see God's grace spread abroad in our workplaces and in our sphere of influence. We bring God's grace and hope and peace everywhere we go because we've been changed by grace. One famous sculpture, uh, sculptor once said this, and this, this is a guy that would, would sculpt these incredibly intricate, huge statues out of blocks of marble. He said this, he said, the greatest sculptor alive does not have any concept of what the block of marble does not itself already contain. Like the most intricate angel that you're going to extract from that rock, that the image of, of David out of that massive stone that Michelangelo pulled out of it. He says that there's, there's nothing in that, that block that the block itself doesn't already contain. He says the artist's hand merely uncovers and liberates what lies within. Christian, you have been uncovered and liberated by God's grace. You have been set free so that you can join God as he liberates others. We can't, we can't work with God until we understand and receive his finished work for us. We don't need to strive in order to work for God. A striver isn't really walking with Jesus. A striver is someone who's not walking in grace. We must receive grace before we can participate in God's work to bring grace. Until we've received and been changed by grace, we can never really reflect the good, good image of God. Until we're walking by grace. Until we receive and are changed by grace. We can't walk in the good things that God, by grace, has prepared for us to walk in with him. And the world is longing to see and experience grace. Longing to receive and be changed by grace. Our friends and neighbors and co-workers, our loved ones, they can't see or experience grace until we have first received God's grace and then bring God's grace into our relationships and into our conversations and into our sphere of influence around where it is then revealed. We've been changed by grace to walk in grace. And sometimes it feels like that U-Haul truck story, like we're just always running late to return the rental truck. We're always an hour late. Like, we're always rolling up to the desk like, oh gosh, what am I going to get charged this time? We stress out because our striving and our rushing isn't enough. 
We feel like we're falling short and always running behind. There's always traffic at the worst time. We strive to fill up our tanks in life, but they just they seem to empty so rapidly. Listen, God has extended grace, and it's better than U-Haul's grace period. This is real grace. This is real rest in Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit is telling the church today, stop your striving and rest in Jesus, church. Rest in grace. Receive the grace of God today. Be humbled before God today, Christian, for He has chosen you. He has pursued you. He has forgiven you. He has seated you in the heavens in Christ. God has given you His grace to enjoy, and He has given you His grace to share, to walk in, to walk in the good things that He set before you. Receive the grace of God today. If you're in Christ, God's grace has set you free from having to strive and work for God. You are free to walk in the grace of God. You are free to walk in the good things that God has set before you. And so enjoy your Father today, Christian, as you allow His grace to wash over you. Maybe today is a day where you're asking God, God, wash, your, wash me with your grace again today. I've been striving. I've been holding the scales of self-righteousness out before me. Wash me again with your grace. And let's worship together. Worship the God that allows His grace, that, that releases His grace upon us to change us. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, God, for this particular word to Your church today. God, that we would see and know and receive and be changed by, and then walk in your grace. Help us, God, to respond to your grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would confront our functional saviors today. The plans that we've made to help us feel better about ourselves. The routine that we've come into in our life where we look down in the same places because we know it's going to help us feel better about ourselves. We pray, God, that you would break those in Jesus' name. That you would, by grace, allow us to experience your love and approval through Christ again. And we now offer ourselves to you as an act of worship. We love you, Lord. We were created for this. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now move upon our lives to worship you and declare what is true in Jesus' name. Amen. A non-Christian, those of you who don't know Jesus, you need to hear today that there is grace for you. That God is so rich in mercy and love. He's, he's inviting you into His family. He's inviting you into right relationship. He's inviting you into that very good place where He created you to live and exist and find approval and find purpose and find power for the things that you feel like you're lacking and need in life right now today. God is saying, there is grace for you. You're not hopeless. You're not too far gone. You're not too far broken. You're not too dirty. Allow the grace of God to wash over over you today. Experience the love of God by receiving the free gift of God, by putting your faith in Jesus, the one who has lived the perfect life that we cannot live, 
In all of our attempts at self-righteousness, all we're trying to do is live like Jesus lived, and none of us are able to. Jesus went before us and lived a perfect life and then gave his life and offers to exchange his perfect life for our broken, miserable, messed-up lives. If you don't know Jesus, and I challenge you to ask God, say, God, give me the faith. Show me. Show me your love. Show me the cross of Christ in a new way today and receive by faith the free.